Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man, but at 26, still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. In this episode, I'm joined by James Dean. Can I ask you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what made you want to come on to Mantle? Yeah, so um, I'm 39. Um, with me, I, I, I've been growing up um, dealing with a lot of my own personal sort of mental health issues. Some are stronger than others. Um, you know, as I've been growing up, I've, I've learned to cope with them in different ways. Um, I've used music and exercise as kind of my escapes uh, and things that have helped me deal with things throughout my life. And um, I just think so many men and women, but obviously specifically men, what we're talking about now is they, they deal with it so quietly and, and on their own because I think male pride gets in the way a lot of the time. I think it's really important we learn to actually talk about it and talk about our problems with, with other people, our friends and our family, because it is a bit of a cliche, but it's, it is so good to talk about it because it just feels like you are working towards solving whatever issues you're dealing with as soon as you start talking about them. Great, thank you. I completely agree. I think certainly as someone who didn't talk about a big aspect of their life in regards to sexuality for 18 years, I think shame can only grow in silence. I think mm. as soon as you start talking about it, it's instantly diffused. And I think that's a big reason we wanted to make the podcast is to get men talking on here, but listeners talking to men they know and uh, just starting that conversation because shame can't grow when chat's around. That's right, yeah. I mean, one of my, um, talk about sexuality, one of my best friends, um, he, he's gay, but he didn't come out until he was um, in his 40s. And that was, you know, through fear of persecution from uh, friends and family. So he, I talk to him about it now. And I said, you know, you basically lived a lie for, um, you know, 30 odd years. However, he knew he was gay from the age of about nine or 10. So, you know, he went 30 years just living a complete lie and not having a the relationship he wanted to and you know he was hiding from his his family um fear of what his dad might say and and it's only as he got older and his his dad got more unwell that he realized that you know he's wasted a lot of his life um just because he was scared to open up to people because of what they might say god bless him i think can't imagine the pain of lying about who you are for 40 years but so understand where it might come from especially growing up when he did kind of he would have been a young boy during that age pandemic and how that was mediated and misrepresented it's enough to terrify anybody never mind a nine-year-old boy so so much sadness for him but absolute adoration and admiration that he's finally started to live truthfully yeah i mean he's so much happier now talking about that idea of childhood and 
can you remember when you were a young boy about your relationship with masculinity and gender and identity? What were the messages you were receiving? How did you perceive yourself? So I was brought up by my mum and, and my dad until I was, um, I think, about 10 when my mum and dad split up. But I've still had you know, a relationship with my dad um, ever since then. But my memories of, of being a child were that my dad was very much a man around town he was a bit of a geezer you know um he was into lots of different business and is very masculine or what we see as masculine you know he would go to the gym he looked after his physique he had lots of female attention you know the nice cars he was one of the first to get a mobile phone so it was all about the image um that he portrayed himself you know the the designer suits and stuff and um you know i'd be in the car with him and he'd be leaning out the window on his mobile phone and driving with his elbows you know you know all, all the, the the manly things and that that's the way I saw that what a man should be you know he was he was very protective of his family he honored his family and he had a lot of respect but he was definitely a a man's man back then and that that's how I grew up um thinking that's how men should behave in order to be seen as a man and that that's definitely stuck with me I do find myself now looking back thinking you know we always say I'll be turning to our, our mums and dads but there's many sort of of my traits I think I can see my dad in myself without even thinking about it um, and I think that's because it's been installed in me from such a young age you know I was seeing that Men had to be men and had manly jobs, you know, labouring jobs and, and, and builders and mechanics. And uh, that that's we were the breadwinners. We had to go out and provide for our families. Um, and the woman stayed at home and was the um, housewife. Thank you very much. I and mean, your dad sounds like such a character. I'm just imagining this Dow boy. Oh, he he was. He he really was. I mean, he's, he still <laughs> is now, really. But um, um, his name, funny enough, was James Dean as well. And um you know, it, it's, it was, when I look back now to my childhood, when I was in the car with him, or I'd go to work with him or whatever, it, it was like, yeah, being a, being around sort of a, um, a Del Boy kind of character. He was just into everything and, you know, constant phone calls. And he knew, he's one of these people who'd walk through town and he would know everybody's name and they would know him. I'm really struck by your being called James Dean, who himself is a figure of masculinity a very a very stereotypical 50s 60s figure of masculinity can you remember that cultural figure of James Dean bearing down on your relationship with masculinity when you were young at all and the fact your father also shared your name yeah I think you know maybe it was done deliberately for that reason that he was seen as such an idol back then wasn't he so you know it could have been a deliberate thing that you know well anyone who's associated with that name is um is a is a is a man you know yeah i think if i if i look back at it now i think maybe it did you know i i kind of always felt like i had something to live up to when it come to being a, a you know a, a man's man i think i looked up to my dad in that way and i thought to be seen as a man by him and my peers and um people around me that i had to be like that Thank you. I think that's such a fascinating thing that the weight of that name, that is your father's name, but also that cultural father for a generation of young men uh, is really, really interesting. And I think James Dean is such a great 
image of masculinity because he is sexy and sporty and desired, but was also incredibly depressed, allegedly bisexual, if not gay, and so didn't seem as uh, kind of virile and masculine as the world thought he was, stereotypically, and also died incredibly young. So I just think he is that great image of surface belying what's actually going on inside a man. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, um, you know, I'm not um, ashamed to say that I think I use different things to mask what's going on um, underneath a lot of the time. Um, I think I'm a big gym goer. Um, I sort of got into weight training as soon as I could, really. Um, and then I've been, like, so I learned an instrument when I was very young. So it's, it's all about having that uh, presence and that image to, to kind of hide uh, maybe what's going on underneath. And I've always been one of these people who likes to make people laugh and likes to make people smile, um, which is a common trait in a, a lot of comedians. You know, we talk about um, famous comedians who suffer with depression. Um, obviously, Robin Williams. Uh, I think Lee, Lee Evans has admitted it as well that, you know, these people who are seen to be so happy all the time, they just make people laugh constantly, are, are dealing with their own... Um, issues underneath that we that we never see yeah absolutely uh, so empathize with that dominant trait as well of using humor as a way of i think it came from as a place of diffusing violence when i was younger if there's any bullying i would try and own it by making that bully laugh and that would be a way of protection i think it's such a common thing and not just with men it's just human isn't it i think and certainly working class people as well both family have this phrase that if you can laugh at everything you're bulletproof which I love in one sense, but also think that's such a vulnerable thing to say because it's not true. Yeah, I'll definitely, yeah, totally agree. So can I ask now about how those experiences you had as a boy, uh, learning that message about masculinity from your father's behaviour, carrying the weight of James Dean, which is your father's name, and that cultural figure's name, can I ask how all that impacted on your teenage life? Uh, who were you when you were a teenager and what was your awareness of your masculinity then, say around 16? What happened was it was how I was feeling when I was younger, kind of magnified as I went through my teenage years, you know, obviously hit puberty. I, I was very young as well. I think I remember sort of being 11, 12. And when we're talking early 90s, that's, that's probably quite early. You know, I was one of them boys who had stubble by the time I was in year eight which I loved, you know, and that, that was the thing, you know, that was for me, that was a, a sign that people could see I was a man, even at that young age. I, I always done things that I maybe not felt pressured to do, but that I should be doing. Like I played a lot of football when I was um, a teenager and now I don't, don't enjoy football at all. But I think you, you grow, you grow up and you realize that actually what other people think doesn't really matter. But yeah, as a teenager, it was all about the girls and the, the the football. And as I got older, most of the men in my family um, were nightclub doormen. So it was like, you know, going out underage drinking and just being a lad, really. Pretended I didn't really care about school too much. You know, I was m more about my friends and my social life and, uh, and like I say, girls. So I think um, it did have an impact on my academic studies as I was growing up because I I didn't think I needed that because I didn't see my dad as an academic. You know, he was always working. Even when he was younger, he, he 
didn't seem to really need his studies and I think um, I took that with me as I was going through school my teachers always said I was I had the brain power um, but I just didn't apply it properly um, I didn't do badly at school but I think if I'd applied myself to my full potential I would have done a lot better thank you for your candor about that I think I really like that idea that uh, you were playing football because you thought you had to not because you actually enjoyed it and you've learned to sh- shrug that off and I think you've expressed something that's kind of been in the air of lots of the podcasts, but hasn't been stated so directly and articulately. That idea that playing a man when you're a boy can actually have a huge impact on your studies because stereotypically men aren't as educated because they've got the, they've got the brains already and they've got the brawn and they're fighters, not thinkers. They're doers, not thinkers and readers. So that hasn't really been expressed in other podcasts. Can I ask you to speak a little bit more about that, if that's okay? That idea that playing a man as a boy impacted on education yeah definitely I mean I totally understand that now I mean at the time I didn't obviously because I didn't realize how much of an impact it probably could have or how much of an impact it was having at the time but I think it wasn't cool to be a bookworm you know and study and like I say the, the male ego I think starts younger than what we think and, and like you've just said I think with a lot of men they're like well I don't need that I, I've got this I don't you know, I don't need to study because uh, I'm a practical person. And even now, um, I realised that maybe it was installed in me very young, but the aspect of learning that I'm very capable of doing is a more practical sense. And whether that's because I was nurtured into that by my dad or whether it is a natural thing, I don't know. But I'm a doing person. I like to experiment things practically and see if it works rather than analyzing the theories and principles behind something and then you know working it out whether it will work or not I'm just like yep just get stuck in you know do it and then if it don't work for you try something else so I've always gravitated towards practical jobs and practical hobbies I mean I've never read music in my life but I taught myself how to play the guitar and piano from a very young age so I've taught myself um, how to do that and my job now is obviously in fitness, which is a very practically orientated job. Never had a desk job in my life. I was actually a nightclub doorman as well. So while I was at college, I was working as a nightclub doorman. I think, you know, it probably was installed in me young as well. That that's what I had to do because my family all did it. Don't need to sit at school for that. You know, you just go out and you just go do it. Because like you said, we're fighters, not thinkers. I, I knew I needed some form of education. Don't get me wrong. You know, I... I knew I had to have my core subjects like English and maths but beyond that all I was interested in was my PE and my music and that was it I could not care less about any other subject and in fact you know I admit it now but um, when I was at school a lot of the time in my final sort of years if I didn't want to go to a lesson I just didn't go because I didn't think I needed it I was exactly the same in a slightly different way I refused to do PE in sixth form and went to the library to write uh sketches and scripts so uh, yeah so get it that if you find that passion that consumes you and also you think you're above a certain thing which might be a very masculine thing but I thought I am above playing these games I know I want to be a writer let me go and do it I think there was a lot of that male pride linked to my not doing PE because it felt like it was taught so badly in that sense it wasn't about playing sport it was about playing men and because I wasn't a certain type of man I was either ignored by teachers or ridiculed by teachers so I thought very similarly really that a a football ground is like a theatre and the men playing men or men playing whoever in a play 
and I used to say to the PE teachers all the time, you don't make the rugby players come and act in a play with me, so I'm not going to come out and act in this little play of masculinity with you. Very difficult, 18-year-old, bless them. Mm, that's a really good point, yeah. You look at um, a sport like WWF wrestling, for example, and it is a big show. You know, we all know that it's not real, but it's such a huge show of masculinity, isn't it? They're all beating their chests and how strong and, and big they are and, you know, people love it. Yeah, absolutely. I think with theatre, I got that sense of camaraderie you get on the sports field, but the director was kind of like a kinder referee, if you like. It was a place where you could be your own kind of man within a dramatic environment, as opposed to the only kind of man on the sports field. So I think there's really similar sport and theatre in that sense of it was community. It's all about performing, all about costume, the kind of football kit and the costume of the play. It's all very, very similar. Yeah, I, I'd never thought of it like that. But yeah, you definitely make a good point. It really is. So can I ask about your relationship with sport then and how your adolescence led you into adult life? Kind of what was it like as a man in your 20s? So when I was in school, like in, in high school, I, I loved PE because I loved being active. Um, but I knew I I weren't a sporty person. Like I said, I played football all the time. I mean, I'm talking you know, seven days a week, my friends outside of school. Um, and I enjoyed being outside, but the actual sport bored me to death. Um, so I knew I wanted to do something um, that involved being active, but I, I didn't really know what. And I, I sort of dabbled in weight training. My friend had a, a little gym at his, his farm uh, where he lived with his parents and I sort of lifted weights. And I quite enjoyed that. So as soon as I was old enough, um, sort of 18, 19, I joined a gym um and it was it was the typical young lad male ego thing of want to lift as heavy weights as possible and get as big as I possibly could you know um and I don't looking back now I don't really know why I did it because I've learned now obviously through my studies of, of fitness and um and exercise and just years of weight training now I've learned that doesn't get you anywhere and who was I actually trying to impress I, I don't really know but it just takes over when you're young and I see it now you know working in a gym environment now I see it and I sort of smile to myself because I think that was me 20 years ago um, but back then yeah it was you know get big um, wear tight t-shirts when you go out nightclubs and stuff and walk around with your chest up um, so you're the big alpha male and uh like I said, I, I got a job as a doorman, um, so I had that authoritative power status kind of job. Um, once again, you know, it was it was all about the the status, and um, I think the same as my dad, it was attracting women all the time and just being around lots of people and people almost looking up to you and and uh, for protection and just leadership. I wanted to be that person that people came to. Um, and that's still with me now. I mean, I, I'm still I'm still very much a leader. I'd like to be in a position of power and authority, um, but more from a mentorship kind of perspective now. I've grown up a lot now, and I, I want to use my knowledge and my experiences to help teach other people. Um, so I always enjoy being in that sort of teaching role, but it's not about me anymore as I say it's about passing my knowledge on to other people but I mean in my 20s yeah I was I was my dad I was basically the same as my dad I was out all the time getting drunk 
uh, with my friends doing stupid things and just trying to do everything as as manly as I possibly could and maybe it wasn't to necessarily portray that to other people but probably to convince myself as well that I was I was being you know the manliest man I could possibly be thank you very much I think there's so much I want to unpack there I think that idea of gym culture first and foremost is an obsession of mine at the minute and that idea of why men are desperate to make themselves big and it feels really linked to that cultural movement that is making men feel smaller in that sense there's been that rise in feminism which rose at the same time as gym culture and now kind of the person who's demonized a lot in liberal conversation is that idea of the straight white man who isn't allowed an opinion so if you can't be loud anymore you're going to be big and dominate in other ways um yeah it just really strikes um, me that you oh, make sorry. a really good point there. And I, I think that with the gym, um, you know, I never I never ever took steroids. I, knew, I didn't want to be um, big artificially because in my head, I'm, I'm very headstrong and I like to achieve things myself, you know. And But I think what's not helped um, men in their own minds is that the female gym culture has grown so much now. There's, there's some... Um, you know, girls now who like to lift weights uh, and lift heavy weights. And I think that men are scared um, and feel emasculated. So they have to be bigger, you know, they have to be stronger because if girls are getting stronger, then they have to be even stronger still. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that at all. So do you, is, is that being articulated at all within the gym community and that scene that, okay, women, female identifying people are now starting to beef up. We need to get even bigger. I think um, most men would never admit that. That's the reason. Um, but it's definitely there. And I see it in the gym all the time. You know, we've got some um, women who come to where I work and, you know, they're very strong. Uh, they've got great physiques. Um, and I think, you know, even if they're not bigger than a man, because they're leaner and they're, you know, they've got, they've got abs and, they just look great. I think men feel that they need to be in better shape because, you know, even little things like men are very worried about their height because they have to be taller than women. And it's, it's all very bigger, stronger, better, isn't it, for men? Um, but I think that comes back to the whole thing of that, like I said to you earlier, that I was perceived that men had to be the protector and the provider. So if you're not as strong as a woman... Uh, and she may have a better paid job than you and she might be in better shape than you how can you provide and protect this woman when she's clearly doing a you know a good enough job herself absolutely i'm really struck by that idea of men now finding an attractive female physique no longer that sexual but intimidating and competition yeah, i think that's totally. much about male and how male culture has changed and almost like the opposite has happened that instead of being interested in the female body, they've become obsessed with the male body and that yep. desire to make their body more desirable. Yep. Totally. Totally agree. I mean, there's so many uh, men now who will talk about, like you say, other men's physiques um, because they're, they're the ones they sort of look up to. Um, whereas it's not about, how attractive a woman is in the gym is how strong she is or what she lifts. It's 
it's a very strange um, sort of culture to be in now and a very um, a very different culture to what it used to be. You know, women in the gym used to um, just hide on the cardio equipment and now they're down lifting weights and, you know, rubbing chalk on their hands and, and just training as hard as the men are. Good for them. It's a fascinating time and fascinating little petri dishes of gender. I think gyms are just so interesting to me. Yeah, and funny enough, you know, I'm I'm heavily into my um, fitness um, and I have been for a lot of years, but I'm not attracted to the female gym physique um, whatsoever, really. You know, I've always been attracted to women who are womanly and that's no disrespect to females who train the gym because I think, you know, it takes discipline and, and, um, and not dedication, but See, for me, I, I think I had it installed in me that the, the man is the protector and the the provider. So I, I think I've always subconsciously been attracted to women who are um, not gym goers, um, not the most confident in themselves, you know, so I can I can look after them. Yeah, I think as a gay man as well, I have the opposite thing that I really don't find kind of muscly men attractive, which is so interesting to hear from both of us that both genders seem working to be more desirable and the means through which they're trying to be desirable isn't that desirable at all. I think the assumption is either someone is too vain or uh, whenever I see a muscly man, uh, I have this horrible little voice in my head. This is a very cruel thing to admit, but I see them spending so much money on protein shakes or whatever. And I just think, wouldn't therapy be cheaper? Just I mean, that's the thought in my head straight away. I think if you liked yourself more, you wouldn't need to re- rebuild yourself, recraft yourself, reshape yourself. I don't yeah, think it's that's right, yeah. Which begs the question, you see, then, because neither of us um, have said we're attracted to um, people who have that gym physique, it makes you wonder why I'm even bothering myself because, you know, it's it's very strange that women might look at me in the same way that you look at muscly men and think oh god no you know he must be vain because he goes to the gym every day um which actually i'm not you know if people if people who know me know i'm not and the gym for me is a very um mental well-being rather than physical um to the point that I've, I've often said that if someone said to me you will train for the rest of your life and your body will never grow any more muscular would you bother training and I, I still would because it's not about the physical thing for me the the aesthetical look I have is a byproduct of how hard I train but I don't train I don't train that hard to look the way I look does that make sense it does make sense and I feel I feel so I walk and run and uh, I feel exactly the same that I do those things for the interior thrill not the exterior look uh, Whereas it feels like lots of gym culture, yes, people enjoy the adrenaline and the endorphins, but it feels like it's all about exterior benefits as opposed to the interior mm-hmm. benefits. I think it's because the way it's advertised, the way it's portrayed, you know, you look at the big brand names who are um, advertising um, gym wear or gyms themselves, you know, they always use models that are in fantastic shape, you know, super tanned, white teeth, not hair out of place. And that, that's sort of the image that they're portraying that the gym is when really it's not it's probably 90% of people who go there are going there because they're not happy with themselves or they have um they use it still with their mental health and they don't go for the physical side but because that's the way it's portrayed I think um, it's very hard to shake that stigma off 
absolutely. So I would love to hear more now about uh, that growth from your 20s into the man you are now. And you say that man you are now is someone who is health conscious and exercising. And also you've harnessed aspects of your masculinity to become a teacher and a mentor to lots of people. Yeah, um, I actually, um, funny enough, you talk about PE teachers. I worked as a PE tutor at a high school for um, three years. Um, and it made me realise, you know, that children like yourself um, who must have gone through hell at school um, for whatever reason. And PE is such a, a hard subject to, to do if you are struggling at school anyway, because it's the most social subject of all. Um, it's a chance for children to not be stuck in a classroom and be sat in silence or whatever. It's a very collaborative environment. It's, and if you are singled out, it's very obvious that you're singled out, either by the teacher or, or by, you know, other children. And I used my three years there to really try and, you know, drill it into the, the children and the other teachers that PE is not just about lads going out and playing rugby and football. It's, it's really not. And I, I spent the three years I was there really pushing fitness and um, to the point that the principal there um, gave me a budget and let me buy lots of fitness equipment like barbells and stuff so we could do group fitness classes because like myself I weren't interested in sport really but it's the only way I could be active but you got me in a gym um and I, I was in heaven and I think there was a lot of children there who enjoyed the physical activity but didn't want to compete in a team sport maybe they weren't competitive maybe they didn't have many friends maybe they they weren't good or didn't feel like they were good at a sport but fitness is such an individual um, thing that you know you can do your own thing you can set your own goals um, and still be physically active so yeah I, I spent three years doing that um, in my sort of early 30s um, and like I said to you earlier throughout my late 20s and 30s I really realized that other people's opinions unless I really cared about their opinions didn't matter and I just be who I want to be and do the things that make me happy um, and I've tried to pass that knowledge on now to to others um, and educate others into that as well. Um, and I've I've enjoyed my 30s a lot more because of that. I feel a lot more relaxed. I feel just more content in myself and who I am. I'm much more in touch with my emotional side. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I still struggle sometimes to open up and to talk. Um, but I'm a lot better than I used to be. I mean, I I wouldn't talk about anything um, in my early 20s. It, not even to my family, my friends, um, my partner. You know, they wouldn't get anything out of me. I was like a I was like a brick wall um, to the point that a lot of my family and friends said I should have been in the military because I was just the, the, the typical grey man. What they talk about now, that was me. Thank you for such a candid answer. I'm really moved and happy that you did what you did as a PE teacher in the school and uh, kind of will have inevitably helped lots of those people who would have struggled with PE because it is in the main taught very, I don't want to say badly, but I mean badly. I'm going to be polite and say it's taught very uh, anachronistically. It's taught in such an old fashioned way that you can learn so much shame instead of learning about fitness. So I'm glad that you... Uh, taught it as you did and that notion that's come up of 
so many men we've spoken to on the podcast, so many people we've spoken to on the podcast have said that their key to kind of that adult contentment and growth is just to stop giving a damn about what strangers think of them. Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, it's the biggest thing I would say is, um, yes, we all have people who we really care about and we, we value their opinions, but I can guarantee But for most people, you can count them people on one or two hands. Um, everybody else, their opinion doesn't matter because they're not, they're not part of your life. They're not part of your, your soul and your circle. So it doesn't really matter what they think, does it? Because yeah, their opinion counts for nothing. If you know, and I've learned along the years as well is that if people don't bring something to your life, and I I don't mean they have to be in some grand gesture, but if they don't bring something to your, I call it your garden, then just get rid of them because it's just not worth it. Life's too short. If anything's taught us the last twelve months is that you know we think we rule the world, but we really don't. And um, our freedom and our lives can be taken away in an instant without us having any control. So to waste time and energy on negativity and and people who don't really matter to you um, is the, the biggest waste of time in the world, as far as I'm concerned. I completely agree. I think one of the best bits of advice someone ever gave me was uh, what people think of you is none of your business in that sense of you don't need to know other people's thoughts and you're never going to change other people's thoughts or change your attitude towards them. Uh, yeah. And I love that phrase of people don't bring anything to your garden. Just that such a nice way of thinking about it. Can I ask you to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I just, I see it now as it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but I see my life and my world as a kind of fenced garden. And um, obviously you want your garden to look nice and have, beautiful flowers and what you don't want is weeds growing through and and um ruining you know a happy space that you've created so people who do bring that negativity um i as horrible as it is to say you need to pick them out like a weed and and throw them away <laughs> because i want my garden looking good and smelling nice all year round i don't want things in there that i i don't need and i don't want I don't think that's a cliche at all. I think that's such an original, witty, wry way of thinking about things. I love that idea of just weeding the negative people out of your life. Yeah, and it can be something as simple as, um, I say about bringing people bringing something to your life, but you might have a friend who can just make you smile, you know, like like yourself maybe who likes making people smile. That's something who brings up to your life. Equally, you have to bring something to theirs. So it's a bit of give and take. I always say that, your um your life if you imagine yourself in the middle of a circle and that's your life inside that circle and all your aspects of your life your work your friends your hobbies are in that circle um all you need to do to to find people who bring something to your life is for those circles to cross it doesn't have to be you know i, I totally think that you don't you shouldn't be a total eclipse of each other and and your circle overlap theirs but i think as long as the lines cross in some respect um that's what you need people who bring something into your circle who don't take over the whole thing and vice versa you know you're not you're not eclipsing them you're not their whole life you don't rely on them for your happiness but they bring you something thank you for that i love that i think that's such a vivid metaphor that chimes uh 
with everything we've been talking about that sense of yeah just healthy relationships be that with yourself or with other people yeah no i was going to say if you, you talk about healthy relationships quickly but if you imagine that um if you're in a relationship with somebody and you completely rely on them for your happiness i mean that i hate the saying that um that people say that oh you make me happy well it shouldn't be their responsibility to make you happy right you should be happy in yourself but what i'm saying is that if you rely on someone to make you completely happy you need their circle to totally eclipse yours which means that without them if they suddenly disappear out of your life you have nothing you know because you've been eclipsed for so long um and that's why i think that the circles should only just just cross your life should just cross it shouldn't be a total um you know infatuation yeah i love that i think that's such a powerful way of thinking about it that sense of being eclipsed by someone else's presence and your whole sense of inner contentment being dependent on another autonomous being is insane when you say it like that isn't it the fact that someone else should recalibrate your happiness it's all down to you in the end really as a final question i'd like to ask you and maybe you've touched upon it in other answers uh, if you could go back to your younger self and give them any piece of advice about masculinity or identity uh, what would that advice be um so for me uh, from a personal journey point of view there's there's two things that i'd definitely say to my younger self one would be as we've said do not um, listen or care about other people's thoughts of you who don't matter to you listen to the ones who who are important to you because they might be trying to guide you and help you but those who don't matter completely disregard them because like you said you you can't control their thoughts um so all you need to do is change your attitude towards them and whether that be to uh, weed them out of your life or whatever or or you know re-establish a relationship with those people on a different level is um is one thing and, and the other thing i would say um, this is a big thing for me was to listen to my mum more because if I look back now she was right about so many things you know that she tried to to advise me on she never tried to rule my life but she tried to advise me um, but because I was so sucked into that masculine thing um, I I didn't disregard what she said, but I never really took it on board. I never acted on it. And looking back now, I mean, I'm happy with my life now, but I think, you know, there would have been so many disasters in my life that could have been avoided if I just actually took on a, my mum's point of view. And that might not necessarily be because she's my mum, but maybe from a feminine point of view, she was seeing the world and my actions and my decisions in a completely different way to what I was. And I think if I'd have just listened, I think um a lot of pain and heartache probably in my life could have been avoided i think that's great advice listen less to those who don't care about you and listen more to those who know about you and therefore care about you more i think that's a great place to end on so james dean thank you very much for being on mantle and for sharing your story with us this afternoon thank you so much for uh, talking to me it's been really really good to chat
Thank you for listening. This has been Mantor, the Masculinity Conversations, brought to you by me, James McDermott, and Story Machine Productions, with music by Jordan Mallory Skinner and produced by Sam Ruddock. We're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity. If you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at storymachineproductions at gmail.com.